All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here with you. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Harley Rethel, and apparently I am saying that R a little more aggressively, so I've been told. Um, the only reason I do that is because if I say it with my Australian accent, you all think my name is Holly, like a girl. So uh, it comes out as Harley. Okay, so that just is what it is. Hey, thanks to our worship team for doing a great job leading us this morning. Really enjoyed that. Um, couple of things going on. This is a, a bit of a different Sunday. Um, so in multiple ways, let me just go ahead and explain that. I, I think in three primary ways, this is a bit of a unique Sunday for us. One way that it's a unique Sunday is that it is a fifth Sunday of the month. And one thing that we have kind of set up and established as a church that we want to do is on our fifth Sundays, we want our elementary students to come in and be a part of worship with us. We think that's good. We think that's a really positive thing. So elementary kids, we're glad that you're here, like really glad that you're here. We want you in here. So that's good. Uh, a second thing that is different about today is today is a big day for us as a church and in particular as a campus of Bannockburn Church. So there's three campuses of Bannockburn Church, South Austin, Dripping Springs, and Butikai. We are the newest campus, and we are the campus that does not have any physical, permanent land or building. And so our trustees, our leadership has been thinking and praying about, okay, how do we establish ourselves permanently here in this area? That's our heart. That's our desire. That's why we've launched this campus. And so at the end of this service today, we, along with all of the campuses of the church, are going to have what we call a family meeting, a brief family meeting at the end of our service that we'll just go straight into, where we are going to vote as members of this church about this land. And so this is the hope that at some point in the near future, we'd be able to purchase land and that we'd be able to move into that space pending that this purchase and this land continues to look like a good option for us. And also um, realizing that this is a great temporary space for us, but Lord willing, we'll be able to build relatively quickly and also, good thing for you guys to know is that we are continuing to look and to pray for if there would be a solution between here and there, if that makes sense, uh, some sort of permanent space. So these are all things that are going on, but today we are voting on this land. And so the land is over by Hayes High School, 5.4 acres. We're excited about having that decision today. So Rob, my colleague who runs all of our operations, he's going to come here and be here. He's actually going to all four campuses today, and he's going to be here to run us through that part of our service today. So that's happening. And then thirdly, this is important. Thirdly, this is the end of our Collide retreat for our middle school and high school students. Collide people, are you awake? Wow, that was, okay, these guys have been up late for two nights in a row, um, but we've had a great time out at Twin Oaks Ranch. Uh, we, we had a, a group of students from here and then from all of our campuses coming together. We had a lot of fun, but we also just had some really great sessions. Last night, we had about, I think about 15 kids raise their hand and say, hey, I'm in. I want to be a Christ follower. So that's something to celebrate. Can we celebrate that as a church? It's been a great, great time. And so we have basically this morning, they woke up at Twin Oaks Ranch and the Butikyle kids or anybody with an association with Butikyle came here and then the other campuses went to their churches and they're doing church there. And that's how we're closing out this retreat. And I think that's a great way for us to end. 
So those are all the things that are kind of going on here as a church. Um, and so wanted to make you aware of that. And also, there was just one other thing on my mind that I thought, hey, this is an important moment where I can say something about this. I just wanted to encourage you again. We're still in January, just. Um, but we're still in January, and now is a great time to get involved in a life group. If you're not already in a life group, I really want to encourage you to check one of those out. We now have out in our lobby area a card that has all the information about our current groups. We have three current groups. We'd love for you to get connected with one of those. And it's not just because we need, we need to you know, have groups to make ourselves feel better. These groups are there with the intent of helping you to connect with one another. So it's not just a Sunday where you come in and you see somebody, give them a wave, and then you go back out. But really, it gives you the ability to be more into the community and the fabric of this church. My heart, my prayer is that we would all be a part of that. So those are a few things on my mind this morning. It's a different Sunday. We have life groups growing. There's a lot of good things going on. Even last Sunday, we did a starting point. We had a, a number of people join the church. There is some great stuff going on here. And I'm thankful for that. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. I'm going to thank God for the things that He's up to. And then I'm going to lead us into the passage that we have today that we're going to be looking at. And so let's pray. If you don't mind just bowing your head, closing your eyes. And we do that to just still our hearts and to take away distractions. And God, we come to you knowing that you're here with us knowing that you hear us today, trusting that in faith and thanking you for all the things you've done in the last couple of months since September when we launched this campus of this church. Thank you for the good things that are happening. Thank you for the salvations last night. Thank you for the possibility of, of development and land. Lord, thank you for the good things that you're doing. Thank you for our life groups. Thank you for the new people that are joining our church family. Thank you. May we be quick to give our praise and our thanks to you. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word and even hold it up to our own lives, God, would you speak to us, please? Use these next moments. Speak by your Holy Spirit. Speak by your word. Thank you. Amen. I want to ask you why it is that you came to church this morning. And I want to ask also, did you come to church looking for some sort of pick-me-up? A message or a song maybe that would make you feel better about life? Maybe something that would give you hope? I believe that we're actually going to get there. We're going to talk about hope today. And it's okay if you came with those intents. The hope that we're going to talk about is actually really beautiful and really strong. But I ask those questions because I want to make you aware that the psalm that we're looking at today in the Bible is categorized as a lament. What do you think when you hear that word, lament? Uh, maybe you, in your mind comes thoughts of sadness or sorrow deep and passionate sorrow, angst, being very upset. It's not, a, it's not a word I think that we use in everyday conversation really at all. In fact, it may be a little bit strange if you did that. You know, I, I pictured like, imagine if you went into the break room at work after this past weekend 
and you were talking with your colleague there in the break room and said, hey, how was your weekend? And they said, you know, it was, it was good, but man, I'm really lamenting the fact that the Cowboys didn't make it to the Super Bowl this year. That would be weird, right? That would be strange because it's not a word that we use in our everyday language. And yet this word and this psalm capture something of the human experience. Lament is a part of the human experience. Because the truth is that life can and will be difficult and hard at times. I'm glad that the Bible doesn't gloss over hardship and pretend that everything is easy and everything is okay. Unfortunately, there are some churches and there are even some preachers that will say the opposite of that. They will proclaim a false message, a false gospel that is something like this. Come to Jesus, come to God, and your life will be easy, comfortable, and successful. And yet that's not biblical. It's not what you find in the Bible. It's not true, and it's not. And this is the big one for me. It's not demonstrated. I mean, if you look at the characters of the Bible, do you see an easy, smooth, comfortable life? No. Like, that's not at all what we see of the biblical characters, even Jesus. And then if you go in, on into church history, for any of you who have read of the stories of people of great faith and passion for God, what you'll find is that most of them have lived very challenging and difficult lives. Becoming a Christian doesn't get you a get-out-of-hardship-free card. In fact, you could argue that it adds to the challenges of life. But what a Christian does get is something that can be found nowhere else. There is no other religion, there is no other philosophy, there is no other faith that does this. And that is, it offers hope and meaning in the midst of hardship. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, what is that hope? What is that meaning? And maybe that's because you're going through a hard moment right now. I know for this church that there are people who have recently had pretty major operations. I know that we've had at least two families that I know of this weekend in the hospital. There is hardship that's going on. So where is this hope? Where is this meaning? Well, this is where I want to ask you to open a Bible and to turn with me to Psalm chapter 90. We're going to look here together at what God has to say to us. So Psalm 90 is where I'm turning, and that's the invitation for you to turn there on a device or in a Bible. We will have the words on the screen as well. And as you do that, I want to offer a few pieces of context to help us know where we're landing here before I read. And the reason I do this, I try and do this whenever I, I lead us into Scripture, is for two reasons. One is, I don't want to just assume that we all walk into a text understanding its context, Especially because what I know is to be true is there's a number of people, and I love this, who are just opening Bibles for the very first time. I love that about our congregation. We're not all a bunch of Bible scholars. And so as we open the Bible today, here's a few things to realize. The, the Psalms is this beautiful collection of songs and poetry right in the middle of our Bibles. And it contains wisdom, it contains uh, worship, it contains praise and history, and it even contains, as we've said, lament. There's multiple authors in the Psalms. Some of them we know, some of them we don't know. And the most common author that we know of in the Psalms that's kind of written his name next to it is a guy named David. 
And uh, most of you probably are familiar with David or King David, also known as the giant slayer, you know, David and Goliath. But this psalm actually isn't by him. It's by somebody else that you may know from the Bible. This psalm is written by a guy named Moses, as in Moses who led God's people out of Israel, out of Israel, out of Egypt, the people of Israel out of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments there. That is the guy that we're talking about. And so the people who study this Bible and, and, and get, delve deep into it, what they believe is that this is actually written after some sort of, this psalm is written after some sort of disaster that Moses and the people of Israel have experienced. We don't know which one in particular, but that's what we're going to read here. So with that context, let's jump in and read this psalm. And yes, we're going to read the whole psalm, but stick with me. What I want us to see is where this psalm takes us. And it's only going to take us about two minutes to read through it. So let's read it together. It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities, we'll talk about that word, before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This, this psalm starts with God. And what it quickly jumps to is a contrast. When it starts with God, it rightly portrays Him as, if you see in verse 2, a creator and the eternal God. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, um, you, you have formed the earth and the world. God is the creator. And then you go on and it says, from everlasting to everlasting. God is eternal. So if we want to kind of summate what this is saying... We could put it another way by saying this psalm starts with, this is a fancy word, the infinitude of God. That's a fancy word that simply means that He is infinite. He has no limit, no end. And so it starts with that and then it compares God to mankind. 
verse 3 starts to talk about how we as humans are very finite. We are like dust. That's how we're talked about. Verse 6, we are like grass that grows up in a day and then fades in that same day. We are gone. And, and this co- contrast, I believe, is there to help us to see what is true. And that is to give us this shrinking feeling that accurately portrays the truth that God is big. He is immense. He is infinite. And we are very small and finite. It gives us this right shrinking feeling. A little bit like if you've ever had the experience of standing next to something very large, like a giant building or a giant piece of machinery. All of a sudden you feel small. That's what this does for us. As we read, we may feel this kind of lack of significance coming over us, which isn't maybe a pleasant feeling, but it's actually replaced as we read on by a worse feeling, which is the feeling of sinfulness. Verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. That word iniquities means sin or anything that we do that does not measure up to God's perfect holy standard. It's saying, God, your standard is here and, and man, we do not reach it. We're not even close. I want to stop and think about this for a moment. It says, our, it talks about not just our iniquities, our sins, but our secret sins. What this scripture and what the rest of the scripture teaches us is that God sees everything. He doesn't see most things. He sees everything. He sees our actions when we think no one else is looking. He sees even our thoughts, the things that we would never admit to somebody else. He knows what those are. Hebrews 4 in the New Testament puts it like this, And no creature is hidden from his God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. That is a sobering verse. There is nothing that you do, nothing that you say, nothing that you think that God is not fully aware of. And God in His holiness, set apart and pure, looks at us and sees our lack of holiness, our lack of purity. God's holiness and our sinfulness is why we see the word wrath appear in this text. Which, by the way, I realize is not a popular word. People don't like to talk about wrath or the wrath of God. But we need to not be too scared of it. I mean, look at the text. It appears three times here. Verse 7, verse 9, and verse 11. That word wrath means to be intensely upset. If you look up the Strong's Bible Dictionary, it says, An outburst of passion, which may be anger, rage, or wrath. And so when we hear that, we think of like somebody just getting upset about something silly and and becoming like a rage monster. Like it it doesn't, it's like, doesn't make much sense to us. And so I want to give you an analogy. This is not a perfect analogy, but in some ways I think helps us grapple with what this word means, especially when we're talking about God. And I don't like the analogy, but I think it helps us. And that is the fact that I want you to think about a man, a husband, who, who is married, somebody breaks into his house, grabs his wife, and takes her away. If that was to happen to this man, 
you would expect that man to feel upset, to feel worried, yes. But more than that, you would expect him to feel wrath, to be passionately upset. And if he wasn't, you would question the fact that he ever loved his wife. You would question his love. And this is where we can tie this over and see God created mankind. He loved us. He made us. And if, we, if you read the first few pages of the Bible, what you discover is that sin in a way broke in and took away us, His creation. And so when God is full of wrath towards the sin that we have, it is proof of His love. It is an appropriate and right response. Listen to how Ephesians 2 in the New Testament talks about humans, sin, and wrath. It says this, And you, it's talking to Christians, who, people who are now Christians, but talking about before they were Christians. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before we know Jesus, we are children of wrath. That's how we're described. And it sounds bleak. And in some ways, I think should remind us of what we're reading here in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is giving us a pretty, pretty bleak summation of human life and human existence. It's talking about the wrath of God. It's talking about our sins. And it's talking about, look at verse 9, how our days pass away under God's wrath. It goes on and says, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. It's not positive. Listen to verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or 80, even by reason of strength, 80, sorry. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and fly away. If I was to paraphrase or to put this another way, if you are lucky enough to live a long life, expect your days to be hard. I think if we were to pause and talk to some of the generation or generations above us in this room today, they would absolutely confirm that to be true. Life is hard. It's tough. Finances get tight. Promises get broken. Jobs are lost. Friendships sour. Addictions are formed. Diseases are diagnosed. Marriages break. Wars rage. Economies crash. And then there's always the inevitable one that we hate, death. And that's just the short list. I mean, really. I warned you, it's a lament. I want you to hear this. It didn't used to be like this. The world and God's creation didn't used to be like this. When God started things in Genesis, if you read the first book of the Bible, it was good. God himself called it good. But sin came in and bent all of it, even us. So that as Ephesians 2 put it, as we just read, we are now children of wrath. We are born that way. I didn't tell you earlier that Ephesians 2 is actually one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And you may think, okay, children of wrath chapter, like that's a bit of a weird chapter. Well, the reason I like it is what comes in the very next bit. So I'm going to read it for you again. I'm going to include the part I just read about how 
how bad the situation is, but I want you to hear how it turns. It says this in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Amen. The description up to verse 4 is accurate. It is depressing. It sounds like doom and gloom, but it's true. And then in verse 4, all of a sudden, but God. Those words, but God, are like, Water to dried up souls. Cool water. They spring into being hope in the midst of the harsh reality of our sinful brokenness. So what Ephesians 2 does is it paints the bleak reality of life and then turns us to God. It says, hey, here's what reality is, just FYI, and then turns us to God. And what I see in this psalm is something very similar. As you read through this psalm, it is, yes, somewhat discouraging. It talks about how hard life is, even if you live a long life. It spirals downwards, but as you get to the end of verse 11 and turn the corner into verse 12, it takes a turn. The psalmist points his heart back towards God. In verse 12, it says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. If I was asked, what is the most beautiful verse in this whole psalm? I would say verse 13. Verse 13, if you read it in the Holman translation, is put like this. Turn, God, and have compassion on your servants. What the author is saying is, God, we are completely broken. We are sinful. We are worthless. But we look to you. Please turn and be gracious to us. This is a request of God. It is a cry for help. It's a cry for relief. And you know what we can know and we can believe as people living post-arrival of Jesus, post-New Testament times? We can know that this request has actually been answered and answered most fully and beautifully in Jesus. When the psalmist says, turn and have compassion on your servants, we have the answer for that in Jesus. We live after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we can know that Jesus is this answer. God points us to Him as the solution for our brokenness. I mean, think about one of the most famous passages of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So for God so loved the children of wrath that He sent His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him will not perish under that wrath, but will have what? Eternal life. Jesus came to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve and gives us an adoption that we don't deserve. And this, I think, gives to us hope 
in two very important ways. And so as we've looked at this psalm, as we've seen how it journeys us, it takes us from looking at God to looking at the human condition to then again looking at God. As we're looking at God, I want to talk specifically about how does Jesus, the answer to this request, how does Jesus give us hope? And I think there's two answers to that. The first is this, that Jesus gives us hope for today. Now, as you hear that, you're like, okay, yeah, that sounds good, but specifically how? Like that may sound pretty, but what do we mean by that? So let's talk that out a little bit. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list of how Jesus gives us hope for today, but I want to give you three things. The first thing is this, we find hope today in the fact that we are fully adopted into God's family. If you're a Christian, you are not partway adopted. You are fully adopted when you come to Jesus. You are welcomed in. You are given a new identity. No longer are you a child of wrath. You are a child of King Jesus. It's a good thing. You don't pay an admission. You don't earn that place in God's family. You don't earn any of your salvation. I keep coming back to Ephesians 2. It's rich. Listen to what it says in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? The prodigal. He doesn't deserve to be welcomed back, but he is. That's what we can receive through Jesus. And so as sons and daughters of of God, we can come... And ask boldly for his blessing. Did you see how the psalm ends? It's a request for blessing, for favor. It says in verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of your hands. And then it repeats that. As children of God, we have hope for today because we are children and we can walk boldly into God's presence, not because of anything we've done ourselves, but because of the grace of God. Secondly, we can find hope for today in the fact that Jesus understands our hardships. Christianity is unique. Our God came and suffered amongst us. You don't find this in other religions. Our God came and suffered amongst us. Jesus understands suffering and hardship. He identifies with that. And I don't want you to miss this point because this is huge. If you are in a moment where you're feeling rejection right now, did you know that Jesus knows exactly how that feels? He experienced it here on earth. If you're in a moment where you're feeling hated, Jesus understands what that feels like. If you're in a moment where you're experiencing physical pain, Jesus understands that. If you're in a moment where you're feeling lost, Jesus understands that. And I could go on. Any of these things I'm describing for you, Jesus understands because He came and He lived among us. And so you can find hope that He identifies with your pain and your hardship and He is working to eradicate that. We'll talk about that in a moment. The third thing, we find hope today in the fact that our hardships are not meaningless. I think perhaps this is the hardest point in this whole message, but I believe it's true. To many people in the world around us, 
sufferings in their lives are meaningless. If you're an atheist, life is just about the here and now. You're here, you live, you're gone. And so if there's suffering, it's just an obstacle for getting as much fun out of life as you possibly can. And so you can't find meaning in the midst of that hardship. For other people, they think when they're experiencing difficulty and suffering, it's some sort of divine punishment. I mean, if, if you believe Buddhist thought or, or karma, like that's that thought. The Christian faith believes something else, something unique. It teaches us that suffering is, yes, a part of this life, this side of heaven. And again, I'm coming to that. But that God can and will turn suffering and hardship for His good, for our good, and for His glory. God in His power and sovereignty is able to wrap all things into the good that He is doing. And I say that gently because I know some of you are like, what? How can that be true? I'm walking through such hardship right now. And you may not know the why. You may not know the meaning. And yet you can trust in God in the midst of that. I'll just confess, often we don't understand the hardship that we're walking through, but we can believe and trust that God is working it for good because His Word tells us so. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, if you are a Christian, you can cling to this hope, to this reality, even though you don't understand fully what that means. In the Christian life, in life in general, there are many things that we don't understand that we cling to. I don't understand how Jesus came from God as a baby. Like that, I don't understand that. I don't understand fully what it means that God is three persons in one. And yet I believe both of those things are true. I don't understand, even with a, a relatively mechanical type of mind, I don't understand how a plane flies. And yet I get on it. The truth that I'm trying to say is this, Christians can walk through hardship, and again, I say this gently, like no one else, because we have hope that God is working all things together for good. And we can know that even the pain, even the brokenness has meaning that will echo through eternity. So Jesus gives us hope for today. That's one thing. But the other thing we need to know is that Jesus gives us hope for tomorrow. He gives us hope for life beyond this life. We are promised more than the here and now if we are Christians. We are promised an eternity with God in a new heavens and a new earth. And let me just make a point here. By the way, if your picture of heaven is of you floating around on a cloud playing a harp, you need to get a new picture of heaven. That is not reality, that is not biblical, and that will not actually help you. Having a good view of heaven will help you in this life. Because we are going to be made new, we are going to have new bodies, we're going to be in a new earth, there will be no more sin and corruption, and that is where we should be excited about that. This is available to us through Jesus, this new future reality. And as we look to that reality, this bright future, what it does is it gives us hope. 
It helps us to endure the hardships and the pain that we're walking through in the here and now. So how do we respond to all these things that we've looked at this morning? How do we respond to this psalm and to this lament? There's two things I want to say to this. One is to say, Perhaps some of you are still children of wrath. And there is an opportunity in front of you right now to escape that. To not be a child of wrath, but to be a child of God. To come to Him and to be adopted into His family. It is a free gift. You don't have to earn it. There is nothing that you've done that could limit you from His family. And so I want to encourage you to step into that reality today, to say, Jesus, I'm yours. Forgive me of my sins. He can take care of any sin and you can escape wrath through that. I want to encourage you to do that and to know him today. If you already know this, Jesus, I want to speak to you for a moment because what I want to encourage you to do is to dig into the hope that you have in Jesus. Dig into that hope. Hardships are inevitable. And so dig into who Jesus is and what He offers you. This side of heaven, we need Jesus to give us hope. And not just one time, but to continue to do that. Have you guys noticed that that Jesus has created things in a way that we need to continue to come to Him? To be filled up with hope to be given life and to be given encouragement. Because in some way, we're kind of like sieves. We leak hope. I heard one pastor talk about that, how, how it leaks out of us. And I think that's a good way to describe it. We have to come to Him. That's why we gather as a church. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray, because we come to Him over and over again and say, God, I need hope for today. I need hope for this moment. And so my encouragement for all of us, no matter where we're at, a valley or a mountaintop is to come to him today and to dig into that hope, to put down deep roots into the hope that we have to Jesus. Because I believe that as we look to him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords over everything, even our hardships. And so my prayer is that he would give us, all of us, hope today. Would you pray with